Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. When it comes to Iran, ignorance is not bliss. And since most of the people in the West, including the Washington policy establishment, are fairly ignorant of the place and its people, I decided to do this podcast. Propagandists for a particular view of Iran have long held sway in America and have led to President Trump's decision to withdraw America from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a.k.a. the Iran nuclear deal. This podcast is just a quick conversation between myself and an Iranian-American colleague, Azadeh Moveni, that I hope will fill in some of the gaps in your knowledge. I met Azadeh in Tehran shortly after the 9-11 attacks when I was making a documentary on radical Islam. She was based there for Time magazine. She has subsequently written two books about the country and is a fellow at New America. I caught up with her at London's Frontline Club as she was preparing for an event. I started by asking her, as someone who grew up in California and who has lived in Iran, how she felt about Trump's decision to pull out of the JCPOA. I was quite shattered. Um, You know, I grew up in the shadow of the hostage crisis. I grew up um, feeling very embarrassed to be an Iranian, Um, very aware that Iran and the U.S. had this very special enmity uh, and that, you know, Iran was viewed as a very violent, terrible place that had hurt America. You know, came of age, became a journalist, reported in the Middle East and saw a much, you know, wider story and learned about history and kind of thought after the terrible blunder of the Iraq war during the Obama years that there would be you know the possibility of a real pivot that Iran wouldn't have to be forever isolated and and sort of kept out of the world not just the regional kind of architecture as illegitimate as you know having to be undeveloped and so it was shattering to see it kind of all come to naught. Part of what made it really so disappointing for so many Iranians, including me, was that it was clearly bound up in the humiliation of Iran because the travel ban that really was an Iranian travel ban in the end, it seemed, uh, made it really clear that none of these policy considerations were really about security. They were not about the things that they were purportedly meant to be about, just like the withdrawal from the nuclear deal was not about the nuclear program, but about other things. And so it was about Iran as, and Iranians as a people who can be humiliated in the course of you know, other considerations, domestic American political considerations. The JCPOA decision is meant to isolate Iran, but that's an impossible task. Azadeh points out Iran has a population of 80 million and a large diaspora in every corner of the globe. The Iranian diaspora in the States is huge. Uh, I think it's well over a million, million and a half. Um, and so there has been historically continuous uh, travel um, back and forth. Um, There's actually a huge amount of Iranian travel, just as an aside. I think just last year, six million Iranians traveled abroad, which is a pretty huge number for a Middle Eastern country of that size. You know, to have a, and these are not, you know, all middle class Iranians. I mean, travel has become accessible to the lower middle class. And so when you have a population of this size that is 
able to travel in the world, that is you know, savvy, that is able to kind of see the fruits of development that everyone else is enjoying, there's just tremendous cynicism, I think, and bitterness that it is being denied just them. When people think of a Middle Eastern country, unless they've been, what they're thinking of is sound, not a lot of people, men wearing thobes or dishdash. They're not thinking in terms of people who are, in many ways, quite westernized. And when I was there, my, my impression was that Iran was remarkably westernized. That's absolutely right. I mean, friends, people I know, colleagues who've gone for the first time, who've traveled in other parts of the Middle East, are completely uh, stunned at how modern and cosmopolitan is. I mean, I think Iran is actually much more like Brazil or India um, than any you know, country around it. I mean, maybe the only approximation would be Turkey, but Turkey is actually, you know, beyond Istanbul, much more conservative and rural, I think, than Iran is. Um, so, and especially in the last five, seven years, especially, I think women, uh, especially these young millennial women, have just really you know, I've written about and spent, you know, my career documenting how women have pushed the boundaries of uh, studying appearance and dress in public space. But I mean, now they've really, they've almost, except for the hair covering and, you know, showing a lot of skin, they've completely kind of flouted every aspect of the dress code imposed on them. And I think that's a stand-in for a lot of the other uh, inroads that they've made kind of into so many public spheres, arts, studying, academia. Um, they still face huge legal discrimination, of course, and there's still a huge ceiling on their potential. But as you said, you know, you go to Iran and you feel like you're in a, a modest Brazil. A Brazil where modest dress codes are imposed on women in public is a good image. People have modern attitudes in Iran to their politicians and have greater knowledge of the world than most in the West would think partially because of the way the country is reported on in our press. When you read about Iran, what is it that boils your blood more than anything when you're reading even the New York Times or The Guardian or listening to the BBC? Um, that's a lovely question to be asked. <laughs> I would say that right now what is extremely vexing is the portrayal of very long-standing grievances uh, against the government from various minority groups, ethnic, religious, uh, even women, um, that have been going on for 40 years or 80 years in some cases, you know, whether we're talking about uh, Sunnis in the border regions or Kurds in the Northwest or women on various fronts. I mean, these are you know, communities have a long history of political engagement, of challenging the authorities to have uh, more equitable access to resources. Um, this goes on a long time, and it's being portrayed now as new, as sudden, as very radical, uh, as a kind of wholesale repudiation of the whole system, and is being portrayed as really a pretext for not having anything to do with Iran, because look, their own people are revolting, uh, and therefore, let's just get behind regime change. So it's really a disavowal of a long history of activism that is not you know politicized in this nature
And based on the lack of knowledge about the long history of pressure from below on Iranian regimes, from the Shahs to the Ayatollahs, too many American columnists and the policymakers who follow them have come to the wrong conclusions about how secure the current regime is. And if they don't know the history, they should probably think about recent events in the region. Look, I mean, look at Afghanistan on one side of us, look at Iraq on the other, you know, look at Syria nearby. Uh, we've had a war and revolution in, you know, the memory of anyone, you know, even my age. Um, and, you know, this is perhaps the best that we have to work with. And anything, any destabil destabilization of it will have such great cost. What do you reckon will happen in the short and medium term over the U.S. walking away from the nuclear deal? The crystal ball question. Um, I think in the short term, the Europeans will do their best to create some minimal degree of safeguarding or benefit accrual for Iran to keep it in the deal. My suspicion is that in the medium to long term, that won't be viewed as enough to justify uh, the very significant concessions that Iran has already made, and that there will be a push to resume enrichment and to develop the capacity, um, you know, for not necessarily to weaponize, but the capacity to weaponize. As that process happens internally, Externally, Mulvaney thinks the new dynamic between Israel and Saudi Arabia could lead to conflict with Iran. If the Saudi-Israeli access and position in the region and everything that entails is enabled without any fetters, there is it's very hard to imagine how it couldn't lead to confrontation. And I think that's at the heart of why the withdrawal from the JCPOA is so dangerous. It radically, um, you know, creates a calculus where it's hard to see how there couldn't be some sort of conflict. But where? That's the question. One of the things people forget is that if you just look at a map, you can have lots of skirmishing in Syria, where there's been, I mean, in a, you, you could make a, a case that that civil war has been sustained to have this fight, that the Syrian civil war became a proxy for the regional power struggle between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. But if there was to be a war, where would that take place? The obvious theater would be Lebanon. But I think the Israelis, having inflicted a lot of damage to Lebanon, you know, almost a decade ago, are reluctant to do that again on their own. Uh, so the natural, the unfortunately natural theater of Lebanon, um, you know, I think presents itself as a, one possibility. Other than that, in a way, the only scenario I can also envision is unilateral Israeli strikes on Iran's nuclear facilities, because uh, there's really no theater in Iraq left. I mean, kind of ironically, the two countries that are viewed as, you know, victims of, you know, the Iranian, um, you know, creeping hand, uh, Lebanon, Iraq, have elections of their own um, with sometimes unexpected results that kind of highlight that there was some agency, local agency there to begin with. Um, and so Yemen, um, I think, is a low-cost involvement for Iran. They will probably leave it. Um, so it's kind of another small Lebanese war that would destroy that country. 
which would be hard for Saudi Arabia after the debacle of its kidnapping of Saad Hariri and, and, and all of that. And then just a kind of direct um, hit on these nuclear facilities, which are all in you know areas that are heavily populated. People talk loosely of war, but really it is about the potential antagonists fouling somebody else's nest, whether it's Lebanon or Iraq. And in, in a curious way, what, what I think that that might actually just keep things in this state of simmering hostility, which is often where it is anyway. But we haven't even mentioned Russia. Yes. And Russia is still a signatory of the JCPOA and works together with Iran to sustain Bashar Assad. And Israel talks to Russia a lot. And I do wonder if Russia has privately told the Israeli government, no, that's a red line you can't cross. That's a great point. And I suspect that there is something like that that has transpired. Uh, because Russia really is the ultimate guarantor of even Assad in Syria. You know, I mean, if, if it wasn't for the Russians, you know, all of Iran's machinations on the ground would have come to nothing. Um, and it's the Russians who will secure him if Iran pulls out its revolutionary guard. Um, Russia is a very awkward and unnatural ally for Iran, but it is the ally of kind of default and, and force. Um, and for its own reasons, I think, um, for the influence that it's managed to kind of accidentally also achieve for itself, um, Will, will try and impose that red line on the Israelis. So perhaps that is the kind of quiet, unseen check that is guiding what we see. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. And if you have a moment, you might want to look up Aza Demovani's books, Lipstick Jihad and Honeymoon in Tehran, and of course, you should go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, where you can hear many more podcasts, and you can make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.